0: episode 200 shenanigans to deny coverage for evidence-based treatments today i speak with stacy l worthy esquire a partner over at cdba law and policy in washington dc american healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know talking relentlessly seeking value. Today I speak with Stacy L. Worthy Esquire, a partner over at CDBA Law and Policy. Besides being a fellow Stacy, and even uh spelled correctly Stacy with an E Y, Stacy Worthy is a former executive director at the Alliance for the Adoption of Innovations in Medicine, also called the Aimed Alliance. And the Aimed Alliance aimed among other things to curtail non-evidence-based medication switching and insurance processes designed to make it difficult for patients to get coverage for medications or treatments that are actually clinically appropriate these switches or denials happen not only at the peril of the patient but also at the peril of the ultimate payer meaning the employer taxpayer or the patient themselves it is not uncommon, actually, that pharmacy dollars saved are dwarfed by the medical dollars and downstream and indirect costs that come from denying patients the medications they need. Stacy also answers questions in her Dear Stacy video channel over at Patient Power. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Stacy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I think you are the first guest named Stacy, spelled right in everything that I have had on the show. I think I'm going to confuse myself. <laughs> what is your role with Patient Power? I think that's kind of a new gig that you <laughs> recently acquired.
1: Yeah, so Patient Power is a really great nonprofit organization, It is a community of individuals with cancer. And Patient Power partnered with Aimed Alliance and with me, I did a column for them called Ask Stacy." So they did a few calls out to their audiences asking for the legal impacts or issues that they face and wanted to know if I could provide them with, you know, general guidance. I got together with the executive director of that organization and did some videos for them. And I will also be doing some blog posts for them as well. Let's
0: talk about a recent case study to really start to drill into how what we're talking about in theory is impacting patients in various ways, a lot of different ways, but maybe there's some common themes here across the country. So there was recently an issue, there was a young woman I think she was in New York, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this was a girl, she's 16 years old, has epilepsy. Her doctor recommended a laser ablation surgery, which is basically you use a laser to destroy the lesions in the brain. And it is more precise and less invasive than traditional open brain surgery. So her doctor had recommended this, but her insurer denied the surgery because they deemed it to be investigational, even though practitioners throughout the country were st- Starting to deem it the standard of care. So, this is one of those instances where we're seeing some maybe the guidelines not catching up to science fast enough. So, she appealed the decision and was rejected. Aetna, who was the insurer, got a lot of really bad publicity for this and then ended up changing its policy as of July 2018 and is now covering the surgery. So, to break this down, what's going on is by law under the Affordable Care Act, insurers are required. To to allow plan enrollees to appeal denials of healthcare, So those are the adverse benefit determinations. But in some states, you have laws in the books that say, if the insurer deems the treatment to be investigational or experimental, then they don't have to grant that appeal. So we're seeing insurers deem more and more treatments to be experimental or investigational so they can get around Granting that appeal, unfortunately. And because there is, as I said, those guidelines aren't catching up fast enough, they really can do that. The good thing here is that we see that things like publicity really help. So sometimes all it takes is just talking to a reporter, and then, you know, the insurance, they don't want bad press. So they'll reverse a determination based on that alone. And this is fairly common.
0: There's another article that I had been looking at recently about a woman. I think it was in Boston this time who had cervical cancer and it was Brigham Young. I mean, there was a whole cohort of physicians from, (laughs) you know, great institutions who were recommending proton beam therapy because she was very young. And if they had gone in with your traditional radiation, I mean, she, all kinds of negative consequences would have happened for a very young woman, you know, like incontinence and and infertility and all kinds of things. And the insurer in this case, I'm trying to check. Was it also Edna?
1: I think it was United Healthcare.
0: You're right. It was United Healthcare. They denied the therapy, also saying that it was
1: investigational. Mm hmm. Yeah. So this is a big problem for individuals with cancer because cancer is so individualized to the patient. So you can have, you know, five different patients and they might all need a different type of treatment, but there aren't that many treatments available. And some of them are still deemed investigational. Same situation where the guidelines have not necessarily caught up with the science fast enough. So it might not be appropriate for them to follow the pathways that are laid out. Oftentimes they have to use treatments off-label, but insurers just, they find ways to deny it based on whether it's investigational or whether it's off-label. The really tricky thing is when they'll require a patient to start with an off-label treatment before they can get, you know, the standard of care, but they still won't cover the off-label treatment either. So it's kind of a catch-22 there. Wait, what? So
0: so on one hand, it's the idea is you have to follow the finger wag is you have to follow the pre-established pathways. But on the other hand, they're saying, but we don't have to, you have to do this off-label thing first, but we're not going to pay for it.
1: Exactly. So the way it goes is the off-label treatment is the standard of care established on the pathway. But because it's off-label, they're saying they won't cover it. So a catch-22 for the patient.
0: What is the rationale there? I mean, obviously, these are large, well-established companies, the the insurance carriers. I don't want to believe that the intent is so nefarious.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, in those situations, you know, the company looking to make a profit. So they are going to try and steer patients to the cheaper alternatives. And if there is something that's less costly, then that's the one that they want the patient to start with. That's the whole concept of step therapy or fail first, where you have to try the cheapest treatment before you can get to the more expensive ones, even if it's the one that's the standard of care or the one that's prescribed to the patient.
0: But in the case of the off-label, like, okay, Mm -hmm. you have to do this, but we're not going to pay for it. So basically, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost like a gigantic out-of-pocket deductible.
1: Yeah, we see this a lot with heart treatments too. I think they're PCSK9 inhibitors. So those are new medications treat various conditions. But before a patient can get access to that, the insurer will require pharmacogenetic testing to make sure that it's appropriate for the patient, except they won't cover the pharmacogenetic testing either. So they're saying, you know, you need to take this test to get the drug, but we're not going to pay for the test. So, you know, figure it out yourself. Pay the out-of-pocket cost yourself.
0: And is this just something that you bring it to the insurance companies? You know, is it a failure of bureaucracy?
1: It is they want to place as much administrative burden in the way to get those expensive treatments. So they're going to deny first and then they're going to ask you to appeal if it's expensive and they don't want to cover it. And they know that most patients are not going to appeal because it's such a burdensome process. You have to fill out all this paperwork. It Sometimes they require you to use outmoded forms of communication so they might make you fax a form in instead of using email or you have to mail something in because they're just trying to make it difficult, and then patients don't want to go through the process. When you deal with prior authorization, for example, we've heard of instances, and this is actually pretty common, where... Every insurer will have a different form, but on top of that, there will be a different form for every single medication. So if you fill out the wrong form or you fill it out incorrectly, then they can deny it and then you have to start all over again. And the whole time that you're filling out this forms, it's just wasting time and delaying access to that treatment.
0: So we've talked about the financial benefit <laughs> to mm-hmm. insurers in particular of making it Tough for patients, you know, whether they're appropriate or inappropriate to get a certain medication or Mm -hmm. a certain treatment. Is there actually a clinical rationale here? You know, I have heard talk on the flip side where you have. Oncologists who are basically doing clinical trials of one. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's yeah. a new drug that comes out, it costs half a million dollars, and they're kind of experimenting with it on their own in the absence of any sort of rigor. <laughs> per se. Mm-hmm. So, how does that play in this whole scenario?
1: There's two things I would like to say about that. So, first, we like to give the practitioners benefit of the doubt because they have you know, the experience. And a lot of times they're not trying to steer patients to expensive treatments just for the sake of driving up the cost of healthcare. You know, they want to get their patients the right an appropriate treatment for that particular patient. With that being said, there definitely is utility to having some of these benefit utilization policies because, you know, we are dealing with a broken system of health care that is very expensive. So in some instances, step therapy may be appropriate, you know, if it works the way it's, it's set out to work. The patient is supposed to be trying the cheapest and least dangerous medication, so the one that's cause, going to cause the least adverse event. Unfortunately, there are instances where patients just need exceptions, and that's where the system just doesn't work for them.
0: I hear what you're saying. I was actually speaking with someone, so this is a real incident, where there was... I'm not even sure if she was an oncologist. She may have been, but she didn't necessarily specialize in the tumor type or the location of the tumor that was being discussed here. And she prescribed a medication that was super expensive. And it was one of the newer ones. And the side effects, you know, like if you did the cost-benefit analysis, it wasn't necessarily a great choice if you just looked at the science and really studied the science carefully. In that particular instance, it would have seemed like A conversation might have been, you know, there was no tumor board perhaps in that particular instance where you Mm -hmm. get a number of professionals who are actually talking out the solution and she probably made a poor choice. So it seems like it's more, it's not necessarily the regulation, it's the dose that makes the poison. You know what (laughs) I mean? Like if these things are used in the spirit with which they are intended, then they might not necessarily be a bad thing. But it's when there are other ambitions which exceed and are outside of the clinical that things tend to go horribly wrong.
1: I definitely agree with that. These guidelines are very important. They set the standards of care. So for most instances, those are what practitioners should be following. There are just some exceptions in which it may not be appropriate for the patient. And in those cases, we want to make sure that the patient still has the ability to access whatever treatment is appropriate for that individual patient.
0: So what is the ideal policy look like from your perspective? I mean, is it if some kind of qualification of the physician prescribing it? Is it a meeting of peers? Is it, if it was your world, Stacey, (laughs) if it was the world of Stacey, that would be great. What would these policies look like?
1: Basically, it would look like some of the legislation that is being introduced and passed in some of the states where the Steps for a step therapy, for instance, are based on science and medicine. They're peer reviewed. So it's not just the insurer coming up with their own standards that's not backed in science. So you establish the baseline in science. And then if you do have a patient that needs an exemption, that there is a clear and easy process for that practitioner to make that clinical decision for the patient, request that exemption easily and have that treatment granted to that patient in a short period of time so there is not delay.
0: What does that mean if you're an insurance carrier? Because some of these things are highly esoteric. And I'm not even Mm -hmm. talking about, there was that other example with Aetna where they had the medical director who was allegedly reviewing claims just said, he didn't even look at one of them. Uh, (laughs) You know what I mean? So, like, what goes on with this proton beam therapy or this laser ablation? I mean, those are really specialized things. You can't necessarily have a kind of generalist person who's evaluating something Mm -hmm. that the head of Harvard...
1: In those instances, they should really be working with independent medical review boards. That is one of the steps in the appeals process. So, let's say a patient appeals a decision with the insurer. Typically, it starts out with some sort of informal communication. Then the patient submits an application for a formal appeal. And then after the formal appeal, if they're still denied by the insurer then the patient can request a review by this independent review board that's not affiliated with the insurer. But, you know, if you have an instance in which the insurer, the medical team within the insurer does not know anything about the treatment, I think it absolutely makes sense to just partner with the independent review board earlier on in the process
0: that would seem to make sense but let's talk about this from the patient perspective because you and i are having this conversation stacy and obviously we both and probably most of the people listening have a certain level of competency let's just say with paperwork mm-hmm. you know we spend our day pushing papers around we have some skills but if we're talking about patients across the bell curve that is this country <laughs> I read something on Twitter the other day. Someone at Athena said, patients are the mules of interoperability, which I thought was great relative (laughs) to interoperability. But in this case, you know, patients are the mules to the appeal process. It's on a patient's back to make this happen.
1: It's really, really difficult, especially when you have somebody with a really serious condition like cancer, where, you know, they're going through so much emotionally and financially and it's taking a huge toll on their body, and they just don't have the ability to deal with another problem, such as the paperwork to appeal a denial or get you know, prior authorization. And that's where it makes sense to turn to patient advocacy organizations and patient navigators who will step in and help out with the appeals process. Unfortunately, they're limited resources. So, there really aren't that many patient navigators available to help. There's a shortage of them. So, that's a problem in and of itself. But that is a resource that they can use if they can't access or don't have the ability to fill out that paperwork themselves. And then also, they can turn to their doctors. Although it does place a pretty high administrative burden on clinical practices physicians typically are willing to lend their staff to help appeal these denials and work through these processes.
0: Yeah, I just read somewhere that a contributor of burnout is physicians having to deal with, you know, wanting to provide the best possible care and being confronted on all sides from... Yes,
1: we actually, we're we're just releasing a study on that in a couple weeks. So stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned for, for a main alliance.
0: Can you give a perhaps a snippet preview or
1: Absolutely. We did two focus groups and then we did a nationwide survey based on those focus groups on physician or provider perspectives, it's primary care physicians and what their experiences were with these administrative burdens and benefit utilization management. And basically, the focus groups served as therapy sessions for them (laughs) because they were just venting on the burnout and the inertia they felt. They couldn't prescribe the medications they wanted to. They had to sit back and watch these adverse events happen to their patients. Oftentimes, their patients would be in pain. It would often delay access to treatment. They also reported it taking a, an emotional toll on them where they would, you know, go home and complain to their family or they would advise younger aspiring physicians to not get into the practice. So uh, it does take a, a pretty heavy toll on these practitioners.
0: Let me just ask like a gigantic, unfair, big picture question, Stacey.
1: (laughs) Of course. And this is kind of
0: centered on medical cost offsets. In other Mm -hmm. words, like you spend a little bit more money in one place and you wind up saving a whole lot of money in another place. Mm Take it on the whole, especially in the situations that we're just talking about. It almost sounds like it would be cheaper to just do the right thing. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, if you are denying a patient a treatment and that patient is now in pain and then now they've got to take pain medication and, you know, patients in pain do all kinds of other things go wrong. I'm not necessarily sure who is the payer of those costs. So maybe it's not the insurance company. At the end of the day, it's probably the patient themselves, the taxpayer, or maybe the employer that's dealing with those burdens. But it, it would almost seem to me that, you know, we've got a process that's trying to fix one problem and creates 18 other ones.
1: The big problem there is that health plans are typically siloed. On one side, you have the pharmacy benefits. And then on the other side, you have the medical benefits. And the two sides of the plans don't speak to each other. So you may have have an insurer taking all these actions in which the patient can't access their treatment. We're seeing this a lot with copayment accumulators. And then as a result, because the patient can't access their treatment, they can't afford it, they stop taking their medication, they have an adverse event, they miss days of work, they might have to go to the doctor more, they might be hospitalized. All these bad things can happen because they can't get their treatment. But the pharmacy side of the plan will still see it as a win because they're saving all that money on that side of the plan. But when you look at it from the employer's perspective, it's still one plan. So even if it's driving up the cost of care on the the medical side, the employer is going to feel that.
0: It's one pocketbook. You've got the pharmacy side of the equation going, yay, look how much money we saved. And then the medical Mm -hmm. side of the equation is like, oh, I don't know why, but our cost went up 10% this year. Exactly. (laughs)
1: Exactly.
0: So let's (laughs) let's circle around to employers who... Mm -hmm is it two thirds of people in this country that are insured by employers?
1: I think that's right.
0: And I'm not sure exactly what percentage of them are self-funded, but we do have a number of employers who listen to this podcast. What's your advice to someone who might have some decision-making authority at an employer, which would enable that employer to mitigate some of the concerns and have it also, you know, not go the other direction and cost a fortune.
1: So I would say to them, don't take at face value every single thing the pharmacy benefit manager is telling you because even though they're telling you some of these policies are going to save you money, not all of them do. You really do need to look at both sides of the plan and do your research, figure out how these things are going to affect the medical side of that plant. Maybe even reach out to some patient advocacy organizations. They will explain it to you. I would like to talk a little bit about copayment accumulators as an example of this. So these are the new policies that insurers or PBMs are pushing in which uh pharmaceutical company, typically the way it works is they might give copayment assistance in the form of coupons or rebates or what have you to plan enrollees counts towards not only that copayment, but also towards the deductible. But now PBMs are pushing these copayment accumulator policies, which does not allow that copayment assistance from the manufacturer to count towards the deductible. So as a result, it takes longer for the payment. Patient to pay out that deductible. Whereas, you know, this assistance might help them, you know, pay off their deductible within the first five months. Now they have to pay it out of pocket over the next five months. So it's more expensive. It's basically double dipping because you're getting the deductible twice, once from the manufacturer and then once from the patient. But the biggest problem is that once that patient hits that deductible phase of their plan, they are far more likely to stop taking their medication, not necessarily switch to an alternative, but stop taking treatment altogether. We've seen studies where... They just won't fill a prescription because they can't afford it. And when that happens, that's when we do start seeing those adverse events and those increased costs on the medical side of the plan. So where it might look like a good deal for the employer to engage in this type of policy or you know adopt this type of policy, in the long run, it's not. It's harmful for the patient. Because they, are, they might not take their medication. And it's also not great for the employer because you want your employees to be productive. You want them to be present and productive and they might not be able to do that when they can't take their medications.
0: Yeah. And the situation really comes into clear focus for conditions, you know, like rheumatoid arthritis or for HIV, where Mm -hmm. say the medication costs $2,000 a month and the pharmaceutical companies typically have a max. So they'll pay for three months or something like that, you know, so $6,000 max. So what winds up happening is that the first month is fine because it's still under the $6000 cap the pharmaceutical company pays the $2000 or 1950 or whatever it is that that they're paying so first month is fine second month's fine third month might be fine but then all of a sudden on month 4 the patient you know they've maxed out the pharmaceutical um cap and they haven't yet hit their deductible because all of the money that the pharma company paid doesn't Contribute to the deductible. So exactly. now all of a sudden their medication is going to cost $2,000. So imagine if you're used to paying $50 uh, copay for a medication, then all of a sudden you walk in on month four and your pharmacist is like, that will be $2,000, please. Yeah, the average American has $1,000 in savings <laughs> and the medications are costing two grand. So it, it's very obvious what's going to wind up happening there.
1: Exactly.
0: You know, on the flip side of that, one of the rationales is situations where you have a pharma company, like the one that I've heard brought up quite a bit, is there is a medication that costs $2,000. And basically, it's a combination of like Prevacid and aspirin. So you could go OTC and buy the two elements and just take two pills and it would cost 30 bucks. And what the pharma company was doing was offering a copay assistance program where they paid like 19.95. So the patient out of pocket was like $5. Mm-hmm. But the employer, obviously, or the insurance carrier was now footing, let's just say, a gross overpayment for raw materials that cost so little. Obviously, that is an issue, what I just described. But it sounds like creating these kind of across the board copay accumulator <laughs> programs once again solves one problem. And I'm not sure how pervasive it is. Maybe it is. I don't know. But creates this other much larger kind of life and death issue elsewhere.
1: I think there is a little bit of a distinction we can make here too, because the example that you gave, it sounds like the drug might be a small molecule drug. Is that correct? It is. Like a traditional? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you have small molecule drugs, the generics are pretty much identical, or they are identical to the brand drug. And so when a patient is switched from the brand to generic, most instances it's not going to be a big deal. And that's not true for all instances, but most instances, that's that's the case, but a lot of these drugs that for which copayment assistance is offered are biologics, and so when you switch to a from a biologic to a biosimilar, you have two drugs that are very complex, and while they're highly similar, they're not identical. And while it may be appropriate to switch in some instances, it's not always appropriate to switch. So when the patient can no longer afford their medication, now you basically. Have have an insurer forcing the switch rather than the practitioner determining whether that switch is appropriate or not.
0: Talk about what is going on elsewhere these days that you're keeping your eye on. And and I'm kind of thinking about what's going on in Texas right now.
1: Texas is a big issue. We have been keeping an eye on all the stabilization efforts at the federal level with the Affordable Care Act. We saw Congress succeed at passing the tax reform bill, which zeroed out the individual mandates financial penalty, so that tax penalty. As a result of that, there is now this case in Texas, it's Texas versus United States, in which there are several attorneys general who have come together and are arguing that the Affordable Care Act is now no longer constitutional because that individual mandate has been zeroed out. And so, whereas before it was considered a tax, it is no longer a tax. And and that's really important. That's an important distinction because in 2010, when the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act initially came into question, the Supreme Court determined that the only reason that individual mandate was constitutional was because it was within Congress's jurisdiction to levy taxes. So now these attorneys general in Texas are saying, well, this is no longer tax. So therefore, the entire ACA should be thrown out as constitutional because it cannot operate without that individual mandate.
0: What are the ramifications there that affect all of us?
1: If the case were to be decided, in favor of the plaintiff, then basically you're going back to this pre-Affordable Care Act health care system in which insurers can deny on the basis of pre-existing conditions, or they can discriminate based on your health condition. They can charge you whatever they want. It doesn't have to be tied to the the value that they're providing. That's another thing that's protected on the ACA. They don't have to offer essential health benefits. All those protections would go away. It would be really, really... bad for patients, particularly with chronic conditions. Those were the ones that were often denied access to treatment altogether. And that that would be the result. And, you know, even if the defendants went in this case, we will see some sort of regression here because the defendants in this case is, you know, the current administration. So they don't necessarily want to protect pre-existing condition protections either. They're arguing that, While the ACA in its entirety should not necessarily be struck down, that the individual mandate is not severable from those pre-existing condition protections. So uh, the defendants in this case are basically trying to do what Congress tried and was unable to do, and that strike down those pre-existing conditions.
0: If you've got cancer or something, how much is your plan going to be?
1: It's going to be really expensive. I mean, currently, insurers offer supplemental health insurance insurance solely for cancer, I think that will probably be a lot more common and more utilized in the future if we go back to this pre-ACA no pre-existing condition protection type of healthcare system.
0: Wow, so if you just have a normal health plan, it won't cover cancer unless you purchase or like this supplement. Mhm. Yes. Is there anything that we didn't talk about today, Stacy, that we should have?
1: The only other topic that I wanted to touch upon Was something that's going on in the health systems. This is a new trend we're seeing too. So I think I mentioned briefly before about how insurers may force a switch. So a patient is on a, a stable patient is on a treatment and then the insurer forces the patient to switch essentially by either bringing up the cost of the drug or imposing some kind of benefit utilization where they can't access the medication anymore. Now we're seeing health systems do the same thing. So health systems are deciding that their P&T committee is making a decision that, you know, a biologic and a biosimilar are interchangeable, which is a designation that technically only the FDA can really make. But they're using that phrase interchangeable for a purpose, and that's to get around state substitution laws. Because once a, a product is deemed interchangeable, then the pharmacy or the health system can switch the patient without... Informing the practitioner ahead of time. So the PT committee deems it interchangeable, then the health system, the pharmacy stops stocking the drug altogether, and then they instruct their practitioners to switch the patient. So the practitioner is forced to switch that patient from one drug to another, regardless of whether they think that this is appropriate for the patient or not. It's most common with biologics and biosimilars. This could be problematic for patients who experience adverse events and for whom their practitioners don't think it's appropriate to switch.
0: So what we're talking about here is probably primarily like infused products.
1: Exactly. We're seeing it happen in hospitals and, and healthcare systems.
0: And what's happening is obviously if you're talking about an infused product, the hospital, especially where a hospital is getting a bundled price to provide a bundle of treatment, mm-hmm. the lower the cost of goods. <laughs> Mm-hmm. the more profit that that hospital is going to make. Exactly. So they have every incentive to try to cut down drug costs. And what you're saying is that in the, even in the absence of the FDA making a ruling that these two drugs are interchangeable, they have a pharmacy and therapeutics committee, a PT committee, that is just making the bold claim that these drugs are interchangeable and then they're just running with it.
1: Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Are they getting called out about this? Is there anybody with an eye on
1: it? No. So this issue is completely flying under the radar currently. We're trying to bring awareness about it now so more... Health systems don't adopt these policies, but it, it's happening more and more frequently. So I think we're probably going to start a campaign to raise awareness on why these health systems should not be adopting these types of policies. Those health decisions really should remain with the practitioner. And And to clarify, it's not always bad to make the switch. You know, it might be very appropriate to switch a, a patient from one drug to another, you know, for cost savings or medical reasons. But the distinction there is that that practitioner knows the best interest of the patient, not the the health system or whoever the third party is. So that decision really does need to remain with the practitioner.
0: Especially if the original drug isn't even stocked anymore. And, Mm -hmm. you know, basically if the patient wants to go get it, if the patient even realized what happened, you know, Mm -hmm. because these drug names are long and complicated and it might be part of a larger regimen that you know exactly. the patient doesn't even realize what happens. And therefore, it's really hard to fight what you don't know you don't know. Exactly. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Stacey.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, You will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.